And now to part one of Dr. Larry Crabb talking about the church I want to be a part of. A few minutes ago, when Justin greeted us, the first thing he said was good morning. Remember that? What were the next three words that he said? Anybody recall? Welcome to church. Here's my question. What makes this gathering a church? That's a tough question. We're a gathering of Christians, and we're calling this coming to church. Well, I'll be going out to lunch with some friends and family after this. That'll be a gathering of Christians. If I skipped this morning and just did lunch, would I be going to church? Tonight, I'll be meeting with a small group, a gathering of Christians. If I didn't bother coming this morning to this event, but went there, would I be going to church? My question is, what makes a gathering a church, and maybe an even more important question, what makes a gathering a church that I want to be a part of? Take a look at your bulletins. You'll notice that um, on the front of your bulletins, there's a, some artwork, a picture that was prepared specially for this Sunday. And I thought it's strange that when I preach, they have a picture of a church burning. Because I want to ask a question of you this morning as I prepare to come up here again in a few minutes and share some thoughts. As we move toward the message that I do believe God has laid on my heart to share with you all this morning, I want you to know that the message comes from a very confused place within me and a very troubled place, but in a way that I couldn't have said before, a, a wildly hopeful place. And I'm really hoping that what I have to say will reach you in whatever place in your souls are troubled, but might arouse the capacity for wild hope that's in every follower of Jesus. And to get us ready for the message, I want you to look at a verse. It's in Hebrews 10, and the inspired writer says this to us, let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. And let's understand, as you look at words on a screen, that these are not just words that were arranged by a PowerPoint technology to appear on a screen when I mention them. These are words that literally come from the mouth of God. And if we're going to sit under the Word of God, we've got to take every verse in the Bible seriously, including this one, which says, let's not give up meeting together. I think my question is, what did he mean? How does he want us to meet? Is this how he wants us to meet? With the guest speaker standing in front of you and all of you facing me and not each other? Are you an audience or a community? Am I a speaker or a fellow pilgrim? Is this a church? Or is this simply a different kind of gathering that should not be dignified with the word church? I'm not sure. What do you think as you see those words on the screen? What, any thoughts go on in your mind? What happens in your minds as you look at that church? <laughs> look, <laughs> the screen is not a church. Anything happen in you? What do you think? Fellowship? Okay, are we having fellowship this morning? You're all looking at me. I don't think you're having fellowship with each other. I wonder what church is. And as you start wondering what this passage means, because it means something, because God inspired the writer to say these things, it means something, but what does it mean? When does a gathering become a church that delights the heart of God? That's the question for this morning. 
And when that gathering becomes a church, I think it's a church I want to be a part of, but I want you to notice how the verse finishes because what's been on the screen is not the complete verse. The verse ends this way. It says that I want you to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but rather than giving up meeting, I want you to meet in a particular way. The early church was called the way. The way to what? Give up meeting or don't give up meeting, as some are in the habit of doing, but rather I want you to meet, and I want you to be aiming in a certain direction, and I want something to happen in a gathering that is worthy of the name church, and what I want to happen, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, is I want you to encourage one another. What does that mean? Good to see you. Your hair looks nice this morning. What does it mean to encourage each other as a church, and then what on earth did the writer have in mind when he said, I want you to encourage one another, And all the more, as you see the day approaching. What day? Have you ever read the scriptures and just stopped and asked yourself, I haven't got a clue what that means. Well, I've been pondering this verse for a little bit, wondering what is the day, wondering how are we to encourage each other in light of the day that's coming, whatever that day is, And I've been asking, what would a gathering look like if it actually were a church? And as I've been studying and praying and meditating on this particular passage, which is my theme verse for the message that I'll present in a few minutes, I've come to this conclusion. If a church met the way the spirit-inspired writer had in mind, I don't think I could stay away. If a gathering became a church in the way the writer had in mind, it would be a church that I would really want to be a part of. Well, think about that. Let the church rise is really a prayer for revival. In all of my 63 years, I've never prayed for revival. But the last few months, I have been. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. About four months ago, A Christian leader whose name you'd recognize pulled me aside at a conference and he whispered to me, making sure he was out of earshot of all the people that had just heard him speak, and he said to me, you know, I've lost interest in going to church. I don't want to go to church anymore. I go because I'm expected to, and when I can come up with a good enough excuse to muffle my conscience and keep tongues from wagging, I don't go. That's what he said. Then he added, I'm not even sure if the way we do church is what God had in mind. And then just two months ago, another recognizable figure in the Christian world again whispered to me at this time at a banquet, and he said, I think I can do more for the Lord outside of church than in church as we do it. And I also think that I tend to worship better, not in what is called the worship time in our church, but I worship better when I'm by myself, and I sometimes find more of the reality of God coming out of me to Him in worship and gratitude when I'm in the middle of a good conversation with a close friend. And then he added more. He said, I think sometimes if I stay home on a weekend and curl up with a good book by C.S. Lewis, I get a whole lot more than if I listen to one more sermon. I'm not sure, he finished by saying, if the reason we meet in church 
hits the bullseye of why God wants us to meet. Don't forsake meeting together. How? For what reason? Now, if I heard these same comments 10 years ago, I would have prayed for my backslidden friends. But when I heard in these last few months, I thought, me too. I've lost interest in going to church. It's been striking. When I've said that to the first two congregations, a number of people have come forward and said, me too. And what I've reflected on as I thought about what these two notable Christians, if you will, have shared with me, I've realized something about me that really does kind of disturb me, and it has gotten me to think a little bit. And what I've realized is this. As my desire to follow Christ has strengthened, my desire to go to church has weakened. I just don't really care if I go or not. If I go, I sometimes enjoy it. But I also enjoy watching the Nuggets win. I sometimes enjoy the sermon. It's a good sermon. Appreciate it. I hadn't thought about that in the scriptures before. Feel a little better. But if I don't go, I find I don't really miss it very much. So, so I've been asking myself recently, why? And I've been asking a number of people who go to church, why do you go? What's the point of going? I do have a, a little understanding of what Lookout Mountain has been going through these last little bit and is continuing to go through. When Elie Vassell went through the Holocaust, or as a result of being a survivor of the Holocaust, he, he said this, I, I have a wounded faith. And although nothing compares with the Holocaust, still what we go through can be difficult in its own right, and I wonder how many people sitting here are having a wounded faith that may be coming out in a similar sentiment to mine of, Sunday morning, I think I'll skip it. Maybe we should. Maybe we shouldn't. Whatever's happening in our lives, whatever's happening at Lookout Mountain Community Church, all the difficulties and all the concerns, one thing we know is true because Romans 8.28 is not a cliche, it's God's word, that in all things God works together for good to those who love him, to, know, to those who know they are called for a purpose and who come to church to further that purpose that God has in all things and who know what that purpose is so when you walk into the, quote, church building, you're aiming toward a purpose and you're surrendered to that purpose and therefore somehow God, in the middle of whatever's going on, God the Spirit can do a, a good work that perhaps... He could do in no other way than the difficulties through which we go. A good work that perhaps he planned long before the difficulties arose. I've wondered as I've pondered this verse in Hebrews, let's not stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. I've wondered if the writer to the Hebrews, who wrote under inspiration 2,000 years ago, so it is the word of God, and we're responsible to sit under it, I wonder if he came back to earth today. And he surveyed the American church landscape. Maybe us this morning. Maybe the tens of thousands, and I'm sure far more, that are gathering in what they're calling going to church today, all across America. I wonder if he were surveying the American landscape, if the writer of the Hebrews would say something like this to us. What I said 2,000 years ago, I meant, and I still mean it today, 
I meant what I said then, that I don't want you to stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but what I want to say to you today is the same thing. I don't want you to stop meeting together, but I wonder if you'd say, but how you're meeting is not what I had in mind. That kind of scares me. The way you're meeting is not what I had in mind. When I wrote those words 2,000 years ago, I wonder if he'd say, you're really missing the point of meeting together, and the way you're meeting doesn't fulfill the point of meeting that I had in mind when I told you to not stop meeting together. Because when I told you, didn't you read it? He might say to us today, I want you to encourage one another as you see the day approaching. And we'd all go, what do you mean? And he would say, you didn't study it? What did he mean then, and what does he mean for us today? In Amos chapter 5, and verses 4 and 5, God watched crowds of his people, Israelites, gathering in the major worship centers of the day. To put it in modern context, it'd be like God watching people gathering in Saddleback and Willow and Lakewood and all the big mega churches of the day and many, many others and medium-sized churches like this one and small churches all across the country. God watched people crowding together into a worship center to do what they, in their vernacular, would have called church. We would call it a church. They would call it temple worship. And as God watched the crowds of people gathering, just like he watched the several hundred of us park in the parking lot and walk into the building and now sit there facing forward, God called on a prophet. He called on Amos and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go stand on the road that leads to these three worship centers, to Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. And here's what I want you to say. Stop doing it. It's in Amos chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. You can read it. Stop going to Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Don't journey to Beersheba. In other words, stop going to church. Stop meeting together in what you're wrongly calling church. And then God had Amos say these words. Instead... Seek me and live. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 10, God was again looking at his people, walking into a church building, in this case the temple. And as he watched his people, Israelites, doing what each of us has done this morning, walking in the doors of the church in order to worship God, in order to sing worship tunes and choruses and to hear a guest speaker in this case speak to you this morning, in order to take up an offering and worship God with our tithes and offerings. As these people came into their church back in the days of Malachi, God again sent a prophet, this time Malachi, to say these words. Listen to the words. This is God talking through Malachi. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so nobody could get in. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, declares the Lord. And, and I worry, I get troubled. And I wonder, is it possible? Is it even remotely possible? Is it even on the radar screen of possibility in our minds that God might be looking at us and many other churches across America today and say what you're doing is lighting a useless fire? What's a useless fire? Well, it all depends on the use to which a fire is supposed to be for. 
What use is a fire? Purification? Illumination? What use is the fire of worship? What is supposed to happen because we light fires that wasn't happening, so God said it's a useless fire, and I just wish you wouldn't do it. I wish you'd stop going to church. And, and I want you to consider with me this morning, very seriously, this is not just a little exercise in breaking convention. I want you to seriously consider with me something that is a terrible possibility. Could God actually be talking to us today like he talked to the people through Amos and Malachi? Is he right now pleased or is he not pleased? Could he be more pleased if we did something differently for a different reason? I have a lot of respect for the church in Chicago called Willow Creek. Most of you know it. It's a mega church, Bill Hybels senior pastor there for many years. Been there many times, spoken there in Mobile a little bit. And I've just become aware in the last few months that they have completed a three-year study because they had the courage, their leadership had the courage that is lacking in many, many churches to ask the hard question, are we pleasing God in the way we're doing? It looks like we are because we, just a couple of years ago, moved into our new sanctuary, a $95 million facility that was paid for the day that they moved into it. We get 20, 25,000 people every weekend coming to the big event. We get people converted to Christ. We get all sorts of wonderful things happening. Of course God is pleased. But the Willow Creek leadership sat back and said, are we sure? What does it mean to go to church? And what does God want to accomplish when Christians gather and what they call going to church? And are we accomplishing that? And as I read their little booklet called Reveal that came out last, uh, uh, last fall, the fall of 2007, as I read their booklet, the conclusion of their three-year self-study, what I hear them saying and what they actually said was essentially this, my words, but their thought, and listen to it carefully. Their conclusion, three-year study of Willow Creek Community Church with good God godly men and women leading it was this. Going to church defined as attending a well-presented weekend event doesn't change people very much. Isn't that something? Going to church defined as attending a well-presented, well-orchestrated weekend event doesn't change people very much. Now, their events, by virtue of their size, have to be very well-orchestrated. I recall one time I was speaking there, about 5,000 people in the audience, and I was sitting in the front row, and I was due on at 9.26. And at 9.24, I realized I really can't get up without doing something else before. And so I whispered to my keeper, a woman with the headsets talking to control center in Houston, no doubt. <laughs> I need to use the restroom. She panicked. It was 9.24. She said, how long will you take? <laughs> I'm in my 60s. <laughs> Their event was very well orchestrated. And they knew how to arrange for little extra difficulties. The singer sang a couple extra verses. I made it back in time, and by 9.28 and a half, I was up. 
Everything was fine. But they realized that going to church, defined as attending a well-presented weekend event, doesn't change people very much. Lots of folks come, a number of folks get their acts together and stop doing many things they shouldn't be doing. Some marriages are strengthened. Some people make profession of faith in Christ. Lots of folks get very busy in doing a lot of things. But the question that they were asking is, what the cross was centrally designed to do in people's lives, is it happening because of our well-presented, well-orchestrated weekend event? And they said, not nearly as much as we long for. I respect their integrity. So what I want to do today and next weekend when I have the privilege of returning is to ask the question, so what is the central purpose of church? What makes a gathering a church? What is the purpose of our getting together that if we aim for that purpose and pray for God's wisdom on how to move toward that purpose, then this gathering becomes a church, and if we don't, this gathering is not a church. Because I'm speaking today and next Sunday, I thought it might be wise to have a two-part message. Part one, the purpose of church, what it's not. That's today. Next Sunday, the purpose of church, can you guess? More of what it's not, because I have no idea what it is. <clears throat> next Sunday, the purpose of church, what it is. Do pray for me. Now think with me on this as we get into it. Why do you suppose many churches across America are full this weekend? Big sanctuaries are full, small sanctuaries are full, lots of people are in church. And I would guess that a great number of people that have come to church this morning all across America, perhaps many of you, are coming to church, which again is a question mark, are we coming to church? Is it a church because it's a well-orchestrated event, because there's a guest speaker up here talking about a Bible verse, does this make a church? We've worshiped. We've sung music together. Does that make a church? I would guess a lot of people, maybe some of you, have come to church to hear what the Bible has to say that maybe can help us lead better lives. And for many, certainly for me, many, many times when I've gone to church, I want to learn how to live a better life so God blesses me more and things go a little better for me. And how many people leave a church service saying, I really enjoyed the worship? <laughs> I think it's a horrible sentence. I hate that sentence. Annie Dillard, you've heard, heard her words. Why do we come to church, Dillard's words? Why do ladies wear their straw hats when the ushers should be passing out crash helmets? Shouldn't the ushers be passing out life preservers because the lion might wake up? He never slumbers or sleeps, but he might roar. And we're there. Oh, I enjoy it. What is church? What are we coming for? To enjoy the worship? To figure out how to make life go better? I would suppose a fair number, certainly me, when our kids were younger, we went to church partly because we wanted our kids to be involved. We wanted to get them with Bible teaching and youth, youth groups and hope that might keep them out of trouble and get them to be less of a hassle. I meant more godly. <laughs> Another large group of people come to church, and I don't say this derogatorily at all, I think it's a fine thing. They're single, perhaps lonely, live by themselves, and they meet friends, meet other folks in similar circumstances, some folks to hang out with, maybe to date, maybe to marry. Maybe God can provide a spouse by coming to church. Praise the Lord. Does that make it a church or a Christian dating arena? 
There are some who no doubt are bored with their lives, whose life is same old, same old, same old, and church is a pretty good break. So church has become a distraction for boredom? As I look across the America church landscape, as I read some of the books written by church leaders and listen to some of the pastors and have a chance to chat with many of them, I have the impression that there are four major whys that define the purpose of church today in America. The purpose of church, what it isn't, the first three. Why number one, what it's not. Make life better is what I've written. I never turned a switch on before in my life. See, it wasn't my fault. I want you to close your eyes and imagine on the screen there are three words written very well. And the words are make life better. And while we attempt to make technology better, we'll continue to talk. Make life better. A technological genius. Make life better. To learn to love God and serve Him and obey Him. Why? Because of the good life He provides. Th think about it. As you're sitting here in church this morning, what do you, what do you want the most? And as you ask that question and ponder, what do, you, what do you want the most? What is the desire of your heart? Make an assumption with me that I believe can be defended biblically. Whatever you really want the most, whatever desire is lodged deepest in your human, image-bearing, regenerate heart, whatever you want the most, God most wants to provide. I believe that. That's good news. Put it differently. The deepest desire of our human heart perfectly matches the highest purpose of the divine heart because God has put desires in us that he intends to fulfill. But here's the problem. We think the desire we're most aware of is our deepest desire. Think about that. Good friends on the phone with him a few weeks ago, solid, mature, godly Christian people who I have a deep respect for, their lives have just been thrown into terrible family confusion. Their son, a godly, happily married young man, was just caught in a homosexual affair. And he's moving toward leaving his wife for a gay lifestyle. What do his parents want the most? What would I want the most if that were my situation? What would, I, what would my most fervent prayer be? God, make me holy. I don't think that's what I'd say. I think I'd say, God, change my son. God, deal with my boy. What does anyone in pain want more than anything else when the pain is severe? Relief. What would provide relief for these parents 
If their son would come and say, I do not believe this is God's direction for my life. I am broken over all the things that are happening inside of me that I know are of the flesh. And I want to come before God. Will you disciple me? Will you help me? Can we go to church so things can be different? That's what I'd be praying for. That's what I would want. That would be relief for me if I were that mom or dad. Now, I read something years ago by an old Catholic writer named Bonaventure that when I read it years ago, didn't impact me at all. I read it again a couple weeks ago. And I remember that I had read it years ago, but this time it impacted me in a way that I wasn't even touched at all years ago. As I read these words from Bonaventure, it really ripped open my heart just a week or two ago. And by ripping open my heart, I don't mean causing heartache. I mean opening my heart to something far deeper, to a realization of a desire within me that is far deeper than wanting a homosexual son to straighten out, than wanting a, a husband to stop committing adultery, than wanting a marriage to be reconciled, than wanting cancer to be cured, than wanting a decent job to come, than wanting decent income to be present. Something more deep was accessed in my heart when I read Bonaventure's words. He suggested this, that the highest love for God that a human is capable of, a regenerate human is capable of, is not to love God for our sakes, but to love ourselves for his sake. Now, I heard it before, but this time it struck me, and I thought, I wonder what that means. To love myself and my life for his sake. I wonder if this mom could say, God, at this moment, as the mother of a homosexual son, I love my life. I love who I am as a woman who gave birth to this son many years ago. I love my life because every moment of life, this one included, as painful, as heartbreaking it is, as it is, is an opportunity for me to cling to you in a way that brings you joy. I want to be holy in the middle of this mess. You're in a hotel room. You're a traveling businessman. You had a tough day. One click, and you can watch whatever you want on the hotel television. Oh, I shouldn't do that. Oh, it's wrong. That's a sin. I could easily get into a porn habit if I started watching porn in my room after a bad business day. So I'll try not to do it. God, will you help me not to do it? Because I think I'm afraid if I do watch what I shouldn't watch that maybe you won't bless me and maybe my deal won't close tomorrow and maybe my job won't go so well and I'm scared if I sin that my life won't be blessed. I want to love you for my sake. How about loving yourself for God's sake? God, I have the opportunity. I love my life. I've had a miserable day. I'm so depressed. And I'm, I'm thinking that the one thing that could relieve my depression would be watching some of that stuff on television. But God, I love my opportunity right now. I'm a man with sexual desires, and I can yield those to your glory. Oh, God, I love my life. I love myself for God's sake. And I can become, as Lewis put it, an ingredient in the divine happiness. I wonder how many people go into church this morning to love God for their sake. What did the Lord mean when he said to his people in Isaiah 29 and verse 13, these people, I wonder who he's talking to, these people come near to me. We sing, we raise our hands, we praise God, we listen to the, the teaching of the word of God, we pray together, we give our tithes and offering. These people come near to me, they go to church, but they come near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips. They say all the right things, but their hearts are far from me. They're not loving their life for my sake. They're loving me for their sake, coaxing me into the blessings they want. Isaiah 30 and verse 1, they carry out plans that are not mine. The mother of the homosexual child said to me, 
Larry, can you tell me what leverage I have to change him? If I were that situation, I'd ask that same question, because I'm not very mature. They carry out plans. What is God's plan for that mom in this situation? To figure out by talking to a counselor what leverage can be used to change the kid. Or does God have a, some different idea about what life is really all about? They carry out plans that, that aren't mine. And here the last part of this verse, Isaiah 30 verse 1. They form an alliance, but not by my spirit. That's frightening. I wonder how many times I've been engaged as a counselor to form an alliance, but not by God's Spirit. And maybe I haven't discerned it. You've all come this morning, come to church, with desires, struggles, strange marriages, some of you, tense friendships, physical problems, children that have concerned you, not the feelings that you want within, painful memories, the list is long. And the most natural thing that you want as you come to church is I want to worship God so my life goes better. Make life better, church. Suppose a pastor got up and said, I have no idea how to help you make your life go better. I've been a counselor for 40 years. I've said it often, but the number of times somebody's come to me with all their problems, all their struggles, all their memories, all their frustrations, all the difficulties, they've poured out their heart, wanting me to help make their life better. And I've said to myself so many times, this person needs professional help. <laughs> and then suppose, something I've been writing about now for a number of years, maybe church is the place where we're supposed to go with all of our struggles, so then we go to church to make life better. And then you come to a church, you give up on your psychologist, and you come to a church... And your pastor gets up and says, I have no idea how you can influence your homosexual son. I have no idea how to get your husband to stop committing adultery. I have no idea how to find the job that you need. I'll do what I can, but I cannot solve your problems. I don't know how to make your life better. But I'll tell you what, we'll talk together about how you can become a holy mom with a homosexual son. If that were the teaching, I think mega churches might get small. Mike Iaconelli years ago now with the Lord, head of youth specialties, doing a senior pastor's conference out in San Diego that I was a part of. I introduced Mike as he opened up the conference to 2,000 pastors, and his opening words were these. Ten years ago, I took over a church of 90 people. Today it has 30, and I'm going to tell you how I did it. <laughs> when Israel heard their prophets speak like that, saying, we don't know how to make your life go all the ways you want it to do, but we know how to get in right relationship with God and to become the people God wants you to be. The response of the church in that day when their pastor said those words was this, Isaiah 30 and verse 10, will you stop telling us what is right? Will you tell us pleasant things? If you take this marriage seminar, your marriage is going to be great. Take this course on parenting. Your kid will straighten out. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way, this narrow road of yours that someone a little while later is going to tell us we have to walk to get to life. Leave this way. Get off this path. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. As I think about this first goal of make life better, I really do wonder how far the American church has strayed from God's intent. 
After our Lord went back to heaven, his followers for about 300 years in Rome before Constantine legalized Christianity, his followers gathered with no thought of making their lives better. His followers gathered for a different, very different purpose than this. This wasn't the reason they gathered. Augustine said these words, I was hankering after honors, wealth, and happiness in marriage. A better life. Come on, church. I was hankering after honors, wealth, and happiness in marriage. But then in his prayer, he said this, but all the greater was your kindness in being less and less prepared to let anything but yourself grow sweet to me. What's sweeter, to know him well or to have your son straighten out? What do you value the most? Augustine didn't live to make life better, nor did Vibia Perpetua, a 24-year-old woman born in 181 AD, married with a newborn child, and she was ordered by Rome to renounce her allegiance to Christ because Rome hated Christianity, because Christianity was so exclusivistic. Rome was polytheistic, many gods. The Christians said, no, there's just one way to heaven. Let us tell you about Jesus. And all that you have to offer in Rome, sure, we'll take advantage of good food, whatever, but we're not here to enjoy Rome. We're here to serve our Lord. And Rome hated him for it. And they found this young woman, 24-year-old lady, and said, reject Christ. And she responded very simply, I am a Christian. And so she was taken to the amphitheater and first tortured, then killed by sword. She didn't live to make life better, as we define making life better. At age 86, a bishop in what is now Turkey, named Polycarp, was brought before the Roman proconsul, who ordered him, in these words, swear by Caesar's fortune. Come on, Caesar's rich. The empire's got a good economy. Lots of entertainment, lots of fun, lots of good restaurants, lots of good amusements. Forget all this Christian holy stuff, and why don't you enjoy life, and if you want to trust in God, that's fine. Use your God, along with the others, to make life better. Swear by Caesar's fortune, Polycarp responded, if you imagine that I will swear by Caesar, you're pretending not to know me. I will tell you plainly, I am a Christian. The proconsul responded, I have wild beasts. I will throw you to them. Live here making life better, and you might go, oh, well, let me rethink this thing. Polycarp said, call him. The proconsul said, if you make light of the beasts, I will have you destroyed by fire. Polycarp responded, the fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about of eternal punishment. The day of the Lord, courage one another. There is a fire you know nothing about of eternal punishment. Why do you hesitate? Do what you want. And as Polycarp was dying in the flames, he was burned to death at the stake. He was overheard to pray this prayer. I bless thee, O God, for counting me worthy of this day and this hour that I may partake of Christ's cup and the resurrection of soul and body. When followers of Jesus meet without awareness of the deepest desire in their hearts put there by the Holy Spirit, when they meet to learn more about God so they can enjoy more of his blessings, they're not a church. They're a religious social club. That's not a meeting I want to go to. I've lost interest in that counterfeit of church. 
I'd rather go to church. I wonder what that is. There's a second wrong reason, as I see it, as to what is the purpose of church. Change the world. Is that not a valid purpose for church? There's an organization called the Christian Children's Fund. And the word Christian is more of a marketing ploy than a meaningful word. Because when you give money to this particular fund, there's no thought of feeding kids and as the Spirit leads to introduce them to a Savior who saves them from more than hunger, but saves them from sin, they're simply into feeding kids, which I think is wonderful. And I see nothing wrong with supporting an organization that wants to feed kids. But I'd like to support a Christian organization that feeds kids and will keep on feeding kids whether they come to Christ or not because they love kids. But will also use their kindness that might open the child's heart to an opportunity to talk about Jesus who's going to save them from a far worse problem than hunger if they come to him. The postmodern church and many churches that are drawing crowds of young people are, are drawing many, many young people across America today by use of the word that has become a buzzword in the postmodern church. The word is missional. When I was a kid, the word was missionary. There's a difference. A missionary is one who takes the good news of God's forgiveness in Christ to all people. And as he or she takes the good news of God's forgiveness in Christ to all people, the, mission may, the missionary may do it in a variety of ways. Medical clinics, feeding the hungry, building homes, clean water, all sorts of wonderful ways that missionaries move into a culture with their central purpose of, we love you, we care about you, we don't want to see you suffer, we'd like to relieve your suffering, and as we do that, we're doing it in the name of one who loves your soul and who knows you have a worse problem than all the problems you think you have, but Jesus has an answer, we want you to get saved. That's a missionary. Missional activity is different. The way missional is many times, I think, at least sometimes understood today, redefines the gospel. In his most recent book, Everything Must Change, Brian McLaren writes these words. Jesus Christ came to become the savior of the world. Meaning, how would you finish the sentence? Jesus Christ came to become the savior of the world. Meaning, He came to save the earth. And all it contains from its ongoing destruction because of human evil. We all believe Jesus came to die. But why did he die? Well, Colossians 1.15 tells us that he died to defeat the devil. He triumphed over the devil. And therefore, we are right as a Christian people, and moving into our world, engaging our culture on behalf of the kingdom of God, and fighting injustice, and voting against abortion rights, and saying that same-sex marriage is not God's will, we are right for telling our culture what we believe, 
We are even more right for saying to our culture, we're not just against, we're for, and we're for people, but even more than that, we're for God, and God is for people, and we want to feed the hungry and build the homes, and we want to take care of the million children in Ethiopia that are orphaned because of AIDS, that should break our hearts, and we should become missional. But not only did Jesus die to defeat the devil so that we can reclaim the territory the devil has taken over in this world, but he died to do something other than to just defeat the devil. He died to satisfy the demands of a holy God against sin. The missional emphasis doesn't emphasize that. And as we carry the message of Jesus' love, we become not only missional, we become missionaries. Now here's where I believe the devil is still triumphing. As we become only missional, as we get excited about moving into our world in Jesus' name, maybe by becoming a political voting bloc and influencing the election, maybe by arguing against same-sex marriage, or maybe as becoming a social activistic organization determined to bring relief to suffering people, the focus on Jesus as Savior from sin becomes blurred, and He becomes a Savior of the earth, and so we become activistic missional people and miss the reality of sin that is still active in our lives. And so deep holiness, it's obscured. And the gospel gets redefined as being good to people. We must understand this. Building homes for the homeless does not require the cross. It can be done in the energy of the cross, and when it's done in the energy of the cross, God is pleased. But you can build a home for a homeless without being a Christian. But progress in deep interior holiness, in learning to love ourselves for God's sake, that requires the cross, and a church better be about whatever requires the cross. The church which focuses more on changing the world is not a church. It's a social progress organization. I don't want to go. So, why number one, make your life better, love God for your sake? Enjoy life on earth because of God's blessings. Why number two, change the world, be missional, declare, reclaim territory lost to Satan, follow Jesus so that the world becomes a better place. Is there a third reason? Is that a good thing for a church to do? If it's your central purpose, you've missed the point of church. But it's a good purpose. Jesus said in Luke 9, 25, if you gain everything you want, if you gain a better life and a great marriage and good kids and, and a good job and decent money and good health, if you gain all that life has to offer, and if you change the world into a better place, it's more moral, but you lose your own soul, you, you've gained nothing. So it's important that lost souls be saved. Of course, it's crucial. It matters. Dr. James Kennedy of Carl Riz Presbyterian Church. We lived in, Fort, we lived in Boca Raton a number of years and got to know Jim a little bit. And a very significant man who's now with the Lord. And he, he led a movement called Reclaim America for Christ. He believed it was important for Christians to be concerned about reclaiming the world. And I do too. But that wasn't a central burden. He was best known, is best known, his biggest legacy is evangelism explosion which centered on asking two questions of people as a way of witnessing to the gospel. Question number one, do you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? That's a really good question to ask people. Do you know for sure if you died today, you'd go to heaven? 
And a good second question that Kennedy devised as part of his program for evangelism, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Never forget years ago when my dentist came to me for counseling. As he was working on my teeth one day, he got talking about his marriage. And I said really intelligent things like, and he said, that's a good point. So he came to see me professionally. He fixed my teeth. My job was to fix his soul. And we talked about those two questions. And I asked him, what would you say if you died? Why should God let you into heaven? And he said, man, I'm not sure, but I'm, done, I'm doing my best. And I said, man, that's not going to cut it because your best isn't good enough, nor is mine. Nobody's is. What are you talking about? We talked about it more, and I said, you know, do you love everybody perfectly all the time? Not even close. Well, that's sin, man. Jesus went to the cross to pay the price of your sins, and the lights went on, and this dentist said these words. He, he was kind of a young guy. And when I said this, and the lights went on, he said, so that's why that dude died? And I said, yeah, that's why the Son of God died for you. You became a Christian. Well, that's wonderful. It's wonderful when people come to Christ, obviously. But understand something. The core purpose of church is to see souls saved. The church is going to become an army reaching the lost, but never a community loving each other. There's something more central than saving lost souls. These are good things. Make them the center. You don't have a church. You have a mission organization, an evangelism program. If your purpose is to make life better and make people happy, you're not a church, you're a self-help club. You might look alive and prosperous, and Jesus might say to us, somebody said to Sardis in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, you look alive, everything's going well, the buildings are great, the numbers are good, the offerings are up, the preaching is fine, the worship is inspiring, and you're dead. A gathering might not be a church. If you meet to change the world, you're not, you're not a church. You're a political movement or a missional organization with a value-centered mission, but not a cross-centered mission. If you meet to save lost souls, you're not really a church, you're an evangelistic program that will weaken over time because you'll erode from the inside by drinking lots of spiritual milk and chewing very little meat. Hebrews 6 tells us to leave the basic elements of Christ behind and move on to maturity to meet. So if these are the three whys that are not the purpose of church, what is the purpose of church? Well... Whatever the purpose is, whatever is number four, a couple things are clear. If this gathering is a church because we're meeting for this fourth yet undefined reason, certain things are going to happen. When we meet together, according to Hebrews 10.25, whatever that means, we're going to become a loving community, and the world will know that God sent Jesus because of the way we love each other. That's what Jesus said in John 17. The world will know that you've sent me, but my people are one. When we serve a certain core purpose, we become a community of love, and others are drawn to the Savior and get saved, and souls are saved. Wonderful, praise God. 
And as we live out the core purpose, yet undefined, not only do we become a loving community, but there develops power. The power of the Spirit is released from us, and we engage the culture, and we do make an impact on culture. Maybe we'll get burned to the stake for our position, or maybe there'll be more people drawn to Jesus, and our culture will become a little less decadent, perhaps, because of the church, if we become salt and light. And if we honor the fourth purpose of church, which I think is the central purpose, then not only will we love and be able to witness and have power to change the world to some limited degree, but there also, there's going to be blessings. God loves to bless us. And if the fourth purpose is honored, many marriages will be a lot better. And many kids will live moral lives. And many things will go well. So that leaves us with a question. What is the purpose of church? What's number four? I sure hope I figure it out by next week. Thank you all for coming. Confusion always precedes clarity. G.K. Chesterton was fond of carrying a sword in his walking stick. He was asked why, and he said, I like things to come to a point. We've been looking at a verse that says we need to gather together to encourage one another as we see the day approaching. What day? Amos says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Hmm. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day will be darkness, not light. Then Peter says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And speed it's coming. Confused? Let's pray for clarity. Father, let us remain in confusion until you speak. Let us not rush to premature certainty. But I pray that each of us will be open to sitting under your word and listening intently to your spirit, dropping all prejudices dropping all personal agendas, wanting nothing more than to serve your purpose. Go with us now and bring us back next Sunday for whatever further confusion and we pray for a level of clarity as to what your real purpose for our gathering together is that defines a gathering as a church. We seek your mercy and your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.